Hi, and welcome back to the Fleet Navigator podcast. You're from Lease Plan, your go-to GPS guide for all fleet matters. I'm joined by the lovely Caroline Sandal this morning for an end-of-year review. Look back at 2019 and 2020. Morning, Caroline. How are you? Morning, Matt. I'm fabulous. Thank you. Good. Probably should start by revealing a little secret, shouldn't we? So we were actually going to do two podcasts. So we were going to look back at 2019 and another one looking ahead to 2020. But actually, as we started doing it, we realised that actually an awful lot of the things that we wanted to talk about around 2019 are actually moving into next year. So we're thinking about some of the taxation, some WLTP challenges. So we thought we'd merge the two and look backwards and forwards at the same time, very back to the future styley, um, to have a look at 2019 and on to 2020. It's probably worthwhile saying, for particularly for our, our international listeners, um, that as we sit here on Friday the 13th of December, we have the results of the general election, and the Conservatives have won by somewhat of a landslide with 68 seats majority um, at last count, with only St Ives to come. So some of the political turbulence that we've been seeing over the course of, well, certainly the last 12 months, if not three years, over the course of 2019, possibly should now start to steady. So obviously, if we if we think about that landscape first, you know, if we think that the UK was meant to leave the EU 29th of March this year, didn't happen, was supposed to be the 31st of October, didn't happen. Now it's meant to happen on the 31st of January 2020. Looking forward to that now, and, and, and certainly Boris Johnson's classic getting Brexit done, we should hopefully start to see some stability in the political landscape. Yeah, agreed. I think it's been a, a really tricky time for fleets. The level of uncertainty um, and the disquiet that that creates is, is an enormous challenge. And I would like to think that now we do have a government that will see a bit more stability, we'll see things moving forwards get some clarity and some direction towards a competitive trade deal is is the aim yeah and i think that's i think that's really important certainly the conversations that we both have been having with customers have you know largely revolved around you know what happens in any trade deal you, you know if you think that world trade organization rules mandate a 10 percent import duty you know crashing out without a deal I think has been the biggest fear amongst fleets, among leasing companies such as Lease Plan. Things like the fact that manufacturer agreements that, that, that customers have are enshrined in EU law, not UK law. So crashing out without a deal, which you know looked very likely at the end of October, is that nightmare scenario of all of a sudden can we order vehicles? Even you know where is my vehicle in the world that's already on order? What happens if? What happens if? I think we've now starting to see some surety. So yeah, I think I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I think there's still that remaining level of uncertainty whilst we understand what Boris Johnson's government does aim to do. I think that supply and demand issue remains there and how that deal actually manifests itself. So I think we should be fairly confident that we are going to achieve a deal and I hope that the Conservatives will fight for a decent deal, certainly for good terms for automotive, so that we can enter a period of greater stability. There are a lot of practical things to be worked out around driving in Europe, licences, plates, all of those things. I think the threat of a no deal earlier on this year, um, a lot of organisations have done a huge amount of preparation and some 
disaster recovery type plans so it'll be dusting those off and and seeing how things play forwards but we're certainly not out of the woods there's a lot more to be understood yet so yes we are taking a step forward but it's a tentative step because we still need a lot of questions answered indeed and we've spent as lease plan we've spent a, a good portion of the year looking at some scenario planning holding those in-depth conversations with manufacturers we're well represented um, within the British Vehicle Rental and Leasing Association so lots of work with those guys society of uh, uh, motor manufacturers and traders and and certainly in our own lease plan lobbying conversations with government local ministers you know we'll we'll probably come on to it in, in some of the electric vehicle conversations which we'll no doubt have as we go through today but again part of the importance of that surety of supply so when we no longer count towards eu emissions targets what happens how do we make sure that we've still got access to the lowest emitting vehicles um, when those vehicles are you know challenging enough from a supply point of view again i think that closeness that critical closeness that we're developing with manufacturers and those conversations have to continue just to make sure that the ship remains steady and that supply, demand, tyres, parts, you know, it's not just everybody thinks of the vehicle when they think of a, a particularly a leasing company in those supply arrangements, but everything attached to it, tyres, oil, parts, brake, calipers, dual mass flywheels, one of the first technical things I had to learn about when I got here. So all of those things are really important to keep our transport moving. I think we've become so used to just-in-time delivery as well, so any disruption of that um, could have a severe impact on the way that we're able to operate and the way that fleets are able to um, keep their utilisation coming up. So it will be incumbent upon lease plan to, to do what we can to make sure that we're protecting that. So, yes, we have tools like uptime and downtime is, is quite well controlled, but that's one of the most immediate and obvious threats of any disruption at border, how that's going to impact on parts and, and the just-in-time process. Um, and that's a very real threat. So whilst we've got a degree of certainty, it's certainly no time to take our foot off the pedal in terms of speaking to all those bodies and continuing to campaign and lobby to protect what is a very effective and valuable industry to the UK. And I think the other, th- I think, you know, the other thing, we, we, we have the luxury as a large automotive organisation. So, you know, we're the world's largest you know leasing company mobility provider and and certainly part of that we've got the resource and the expertise in-house to think about and consider the ramifications of brexit and and indeed some of our some of our larger customers but actually part of our role continues to be going forward to the to the sme market so the smaller and medium enterprise and the traders who who don't have that level of resource who perhaps have you know 20 30 40 employees you know even 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 up to the kind of the medium enterprise level who need help with that thinking and need that information and look to lease plan to kind of say well look what does this mean for us and actually translating that through things like the fleet navigator podcast through the insights page i think remains a critical part of 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 the role that we need to play in those organizations um, we should probably move on because there's a lot to get through mm. and we could we could we could talk about politics oh, yes. for hours um, so I think probably one of the most important things we should cover today is the company car tax landscape so the last podcast that we did uh, where we looked at company car tax was probably June July time 
and actually it was about three weeks before a finance bill uh, landed, a finance bill that was never enshrined in law. It was draft, it was taken away, we got a new Chancellor because there was a falling out with Philip Hammond, uh, the Queen's speech never covered it. So technically, do we still have tax table? Do we have tax tables for 2021, 22 and beyond? In theory, um, are they enshrined in law? No. And Mr Johnson, returning to our previous segment just for a moment, has promised a, a tax-cutting budget in the first three weeks of office. Um, so, fingers crossed, some of the positive news we saw in that finance bill, which we'll, we'll cover off in a bit more detail, will remain. But it is worthwhile saying that for the first time in, in, in as long as I can remember, we don't have a finance bill in act and we don't have a red book produced by a budget to back it up and all of the ATIPA and the manuals and the employment stuff um, that, that goes alongside it. So certainly this year has been very turbulent from a company car tax perspective. Yeah, and I think whilst that isn't enshrined in law, I think it's it's reasonable to expect that it shortly will do. So I think we just move ahead um, on that basis. I think it's been an enormously challenging period of time so with WLTP mm. and we have to sound the an acronym klaxon because there's probably going to be quite a few of those coming up. <laughs> but we can't keep saying worldwide harmonised light vehicle testing. No because it's much too much of a mouthful. <laughs> it's been a really really interesting time so if you think back two or three years when all this came out and what was going to become WLTP came out and I can remember sitting in a room with manufacturers and Beaver LA and this was before my days at Lease Plan and um, and Mike from Lease Plan and actually starting to realise what this meant and there are a lot of ashen faces as people started to get their heads around how the data was going to fundamentally change um, and what that meant and yes there were rumours at that time of the scale of CO2 change, the scale of MPG change and I think whilst everybody recognised that it was a positive thing to get closer to a real world figure, the way that that's happened has been uniquely challenging for the industry and it's probably been the biggest operational IT exercise that most leasing companies have ever faced. Um, so we're getting to the end of it, the data is starting to flow through but in terms of how this impacts fleets it's causing fleets to need to rethink their scheme design and their strategy because vehicles are now shifting grades. Different vehicles have been impacted in different ways. So some have been impacted to a lower degree, some have been highly impacted and are leaping up at least a grade, if not two, because of impact on Class 1A and MPGs. So I think it's been a, a really, really rocky road to get to where we are now. And, and I don't think anybody is out of the woods because of what we're seeing coming through in the data where vehicles are changing. So, and again, I think, you know, the, it, from a testing procedure, we, we, sh we have to, I think, recognise positively the move that we now see that, that, that you know, the vehicle, Volkswagen Golf, whatever the vehicle is, that was tested under yesterday's um, new European driving cycle. When we say new, we mean 1996, by the way, boys and girls. So, you know, it's been around a long time. But some of the, you know, astronomical MPG figures we were seeing, particularly on the hybrids that were coming through from that very limited test procedure, we should welcome the fact that we're now getting a much more uh, transparent CO2, a much more accurate MPG and much more accurate ranges on those hybrid vehicles. 
but the problems remain and will continue to remain and indeed persist where people have policy limits set so you know you and i both know sensible policy limits you know should circle around leasing disallowances in some shape way or form so kind of 110 grams of co2 there are very very few vehicles um, and it's only the new technological releases that we're, that we're seeing come through so new ford focus for example their three-cylinder diesel is a sub 90 gram car but they are few and far between and you know from an environmental perspective customers and and, and people are having to get their heads around increasing their co2 bandings again and needing to incur leasing disallowance costs as it goes outside 110 come back to some of the work that we're doing on, on lobbying around increasing that again it doesn't it's not a palatable message to be well the answer is to increase it to 150 or 160 to still get my five series my three series in in into band that is uncomfortable when but it, the fact remains it's the same car as it was yesterday it's just tested on a different regime and now you're seeing a more realistic test output is it fair to then penalize your employees and and remove those vehicles just because the expense and the cost and the environmental impact is now crystallized in a different way than it was before i think it's interesting to see not only for co2 and and how that impacts a vehicle's position but the way in which manufacturers have have restructured their ranges to try to find and navigate our way through what is able to be offered. So we've seen vehicles just completely disappear. We've seen manufacturers move away from having selectable options to packs and, and packs alone and no options whatsoever and everything in between. So I think the the way that people are able to look at their options and select and order their car has, has changed because of all of that. That's probably a good thing because if you think in years gone by, the extent of options that have been available has has been a list for here to the moon and back. It, it got quite ridiculous at one point. So I think you know a side effect of WLTP. That's probably a good thing to simplify what's on offer. Certainly makes it a bit easier from a processing point of view as well. But easier, I think, for drivers to understand what is available to them, and hopefully we'll see fewer people have some confusion over selectable options and competing options and if you choose option a you also have to choose option b c and d and it, it got hugely complicated so it's, as a result that's a good thing if we can grasp onto some positive out of you know double digit increases in co2 for some of those vehicles which is causing fleets and pains and i think the other thing so you know in discussions that we've had that there, there does seem to be you know jaws hitting the table so for example and i and i have to say kudos goes goes to bmw because they are the first to have all of their vehicles in the cap api so when we the, so the cap api is the feed that's available that that feeds in from the manufacturers this this baseline data so it's probably important to recognize as well that where manufacturers haven't moved to packs and what we call a true co2 value what customers are going to start to see in our quoting systems um, moving into the new year and wider is what we call a span so co2s will be expressed as a as a minimum and a maximum co2 and there will be a minimum and a maximum mpg and range for hybrids because at that point of of, of quotation it's simply not known what the true co2 is going to be until that vehicle is produced and, and and the emissions have been factored in so people are going to have to get start to get used to seeing 
this kind of range piece. Um, and again, that's difficult to deal with and cope with. But thinking about what we're seeing, and, and certainly I've become less gloomy, I guess, about the, the WLTP piece, because is this going to be a long-term problem? I would say no. I think what we're probably going to see is disruption in, in next year in 2020. What we are seeing is as manufacturers do technology refreshes, we, we mentioned the Ford earlier, and produce new engines in, in a new way, some would say to make sure they get through the testing in a positive way. That's, of course, very, very different to fitting some sort of device on your vehicle that cheats the test. Um, we will see those vehicles start to drop below 110 and 90 grams and back into policy. So certainly in the discussions that I've been having, it's don't panic. You know, there are things that you can do. It might be that you extend some vehicles and, and don't take any drastic action to your policy to deal with WLTP when you're probably going to have to reverse out that action later in the year. It's a bit of riding the storm, I think, yeah. for fleets yeah. in, in just staying close, exploring your options, you know, working with lease plan to understand, OK, well, what could we do differently that just helps us to, to get over the what is it, bump in the road because it will settle down in, so in the coming months. Yeah, we've got to throw a few relevant ones in there. But yeah, it's, it is a uniquely challenging time for fleets in just understanding what the impact is and and the various ways that, that you can handle your drivers, helping drivers to understand. It's a fundamental shift in the user experience as we've been used to years and years of dealing in absolutes mm. when you're doing quotes. And, and whilst it's always had that potential for a vehicle to shift in CO2 between quote and order and delivery, it doesn't happen all that often. And when it does change, it's not particularly large. So, so going from that figure, that's it set to a, a span and a range and you know different different displays. We'll have to hold drivers' hands to go through that to make sure they understand um, what their cost exposure is and understand just how much it's changing. But again, it, it's it's right. Difficult though it is, it's the right thing if you think and. and People who've listened to the previous Fleet Navigator podcast, my, my favourite panoramic sunroof example, it's a 20 kilo piece of glass. And should the testing regime take into account the fact that you've just bolted on a very, very heavy option onto that vehicle? Yes, it should. And obviously, we're talking about passenger cars here and, and, and like commercial vehicles is coming, which is another kind of headache for the industry to deal with when we think about the sheer range of options that can be fitted to those vehicles both pre and post registration but is it right that those things should be taken into account yes it is is it complicated yeah boy is it and you know dealing with it in our quoting systems that the important thing is making sure that at point of order that customers and drivers understand what that co2 is going to be so they can make that informed decision at that, at that point so this is a this is a company car tax section and we've talks a lot about WLTP. I guess the good news for those people that haven't seen it is that we do now have sight of the company car tax tables, finance bill being passed into law aside for the next few years. And the government have recognised that WLTP is a challenge and have introduced a tax table now for April next year that actually sees electric vehicles, so the lowest emission vehicles, at 0%. So there has never been a time in the history of company cars where there will be a company car available that is zero bank company car tax, therefore zero national insurance contributions. I guess the complexity is we now have two tax tables. 
So pre-registration, pre-April uses one set of tables, post-April uses another. Which is not welcome, let's face it. No. However, <laughs> of all of the other options that were available, it's there were there, it could be a lot worse, I suppose. And we do have that certainty, and that was sadly lacking for so long, and we're stopping drivers from wanting to make a decision. So they are now in a position where, as all that WLTP data washes through, we can understand the tax exposure and, and they can start to make a decision. I think we're already seeing that the demand in electric vehicles is increasing exponentially, mm-hmm. which is a great thing. And it's no surprise that when you make a substantial change to BIK in favour of certain vehicles, company car drivers vote with their feet. That's always happened. So it, yes, it's, look at it's diesels, for example. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so we would welcome that. We would welcome with open arms a slightly longer term picture in terms of grants and future tax tables. And it's certainly something that we've all been campaigning is to have at least four years future tax rates, because let's face it, three and four years are the norm for contracts and every driver should reasonably expect to know what tax exposure they're going to have during that whole contract period. And that's been lacking for a few years. So that will continue to be something that we campaign for. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about the grants is that there's a briefing document out um, at the moment from uh, Department of Transport around how they support the grants longer term. And slightly slightly worrisome is that they seem to be suggesting that uh, non-plug-ins, non-EVs will have some form of a surcharge in their vehicle excise duty to continue to fund what the government sees as a very expensive grant. Not sure that's the right thing to do would be my personal view. I think our vehicle excise duty tables are complicated enough. When you think you've got your first showroom tax now and you've got luxury car out for 40 grand attracting something else to then say, well, it's an obviously um, RDU2 status attracting a 4% diesel surcharge or not and a one-bound vehicle excise duty. It's complicated enough. Please don't do anything more to complicate the vehicle excise duty landscape. Actually, what you should be doing in your considerations and listeners probably won't welcome me or thank me for saying this, is actually starting to bring forward your considerations of what do you do when we've got 100,000 electric vehicles on the road? How do you recover your fuel duty loss? That is really hard thinking. We've probably said it on the podcast before. Most educated fleet people will say that the answer is road tolling and remove vehicle excise duty completely but any party that proposes it won't get into power and any government that introduces it will be out at the next election. It's a really divisive piece, but something must be done. We'll argue till the cows come home as to whether we should have, you know, 68% of of the fuel costs in the UK being duty and taxation. Whether that's right or wrong is largely irrelevant. It's a big amount of money that goes into the coffers and that is gonna need to be replaced somehow. I think it's inevitable, let's be honest, because we are only going to go one way, and that is using less petrol and diesel. Mm. There's there's no alternative there, so government will have to find that money from somewhere. Um, certainly, I've sat in room with statisticians and people from Treasury and Revenue and... Easy and, for and, you to say. <laughs> yes, I almost got that out correctly, where they've said, yes, some kind of pay on use. Mm. And they said... Our challenge is exactly as you said that people invariably say when surveyed over my dead body and I will never ever vote for a party that does that 
so it's a huge challenge for government to find their way through so we're probably talking about a five to twenty year plan of gradually starting to make those changes but at the moment as far as i can see they have no answers at all nope. as to where you make a start and there was one chap that made quite a valid point that says well it's pretty much pay on use at the moment because every time you put fuel into your car you're paying tax but people do not see it like that and moving away from that to as soon as you enter a, a certain road or zone you are charged something is is an entirely different matter but it has to happen yeah. we're, we're starting to see that and then they will we talk a bit later about um, clean air zones and mm. other kind of zones that have charging. So you know, that will start to eat away and start to get people used to the concept of, of paying something when they travel around um, in their vehicles. But at the moment, we are a long, long way away. And it's a huge issue. So I was in a, uh, an all-parliamentary group body audience the other day where this, this was raised and people were kind of saying, well, could we put a penny onto electricity charges when you're when you're using public access charging? And of course, how do you deal with, you know, when you think that 60, 65% of charging is either office-based or home-based for electric vehicles, how do you deal with that? We don't have a dual tariff yet in the UK in terms of charging infrastructure. So, so how can you say, well, actually, Mr. Walters, you've got a plug-in, uh, you've got a plug-in car, when you're charging at home, we're gonna put a penny Per, per kilowatt hour on your electricity you, is simply unmanageable. So that headache, that challenge is going to take a lot of thinking from a lot of clever people. And obviously what we've seen from our, our government over the course of the last couple of years is that they are very logical and very intelligent about these things. Make your own jokes. But actually, you know, this is, this is a very serious matter and they cannot introduce half-baked legislation because it will simply turn people away from electric vehicles again. So we're talking about electric vehicles. We, we probably best move on to, to, to that section. Again, from a, from a legislative point of view, it is absolutely welcome that the lowest emitting vehicles, so those vehicles that are zero emission, um, or those vehicles that do up to 130 miles or, or 130 miles plus zero emission range now from April will attract 0%, which is a fantastic story. And... As lease plan, um, we are we are very proud to be a founding member of the EV100 initiative. Um, so, for those that, that don't know, so EV100 is an initiative that organisations across the world are entering into to make very firm commitments. And in a lease plan's case, it's two parts. So, we will be net zero emissions from our fleet of circa 1.8 million vehicles globally by 2030. So, that'll be a mix of customers making a move to more environmentally friendly fleets it'll be a mix of carbon offsetting green credits etc and we are also taking a, a further stance to move our own internal fleet so that's your car my car um, not just our cars to fully electric by the end of 2021 which is fantastic but not without its challenges i think fleets are starting to recognize the opportunities that are available as well so We've seen that tipping point largely reached in terms of whole life costs mm. um, and increasingly the conversations that I'm having with fleets is they are ready to go and they're just seeking guidance as to how they start that journey to transition. Fewer and fewer fleets are, are sitting back and saying it's not for me yet. Most of them are starting to say what can we do, how quickly can we do it, what do we need to do to prepare ourselves 
how do we get ready for workplace charging, um, recognising that increasingly drivers want to move to EV. The company wants to move to EV because from a cost perspective, it absolutely works now. And that's probably this year we've seen that dramatic change yeah. where the traditional company car can now be an EV and very variably so and people's feelings about EVs have changed so we're seeing a a move away from range anxiety because of the sorts of product that's available a bit more towards charging anxiety as we still need to see major improvements in the charging infrastructure but today if you are routinely doing 50 miles a day or less and the occasional longer trip and you can charge at home you can happily use an EV and certainly what we're learning from drivers that have been in an electric vehicle for a while is they're saying my behaviour has changed yes but actually it's not a problem it's quite easy and if you drive around with your eyes open you see charge points all over the place so it's just a matter of being slightly more planned and organised but that's not a huge amount of effort and with improving technology improving apps websites etc etc it's becoming easier and easier and easier and vehicle tech is making it easier to be able to plan where you're going to charge and your vehicle will be able to tell you these are your charging options you're going to need to charge within the next where would you like me to reroute you to so it will become much much easier over the coming probably 12 18 months yeah and i think or i think probably one of the biggest problems that we run into as, as, as fleet consultants as we are in, in conversations with customers and our own experience actually is the supply and demand for the vehicles. So, you know, we, we were in a situation where Hyundai Kona, I'm fairly well trailed on this, but, you know, Kona was released with only 400 build slots available to the UK. That came onto our quoting systems in the morning and went off in the afternoon. You know, availability of that product and demand for that product was such that it just sold out. Um, you know, retail had a huge waiting list. Fleets really didn't see that product in, in any shape, way or form. We've just seen it again with ID3 uh, and, and VW are, are very well trailed. So the ID3 is a, a very, very exciting vehicle. So this is a sub 30 grand standard. So it's about 26K. Um, it's gonna be about 250 mile standard range. It's golf sized, you know, it's from a very well recognizable manufacturer very exciting but if you place an order now you won't see one until 2021 and vw have said very clearly so they've committed to three factories in addition to the wolfsburg plant for for the id uh, range they've committed to three more factories globally by 2022 and they've said very clearly that until that happens that product availability problem will continue to exist and persist. And I think that's a massive issue for fleets. So Nissan Leaf is very available. Tesla 3 is pretty good and an S is pretty good. But that mid-segment space that we've been crying out for for the last couple of years, 250 mile range, 26, 30, 35 grand, it's still an expensive chunk of metal, but that kind of mid-segment range is just not there in any quantity. But that doesn't mean that you guys out there who are thinking about moving to EVs or how do I do it, there is a lot of work to be done and and considerations to be made as to how you make that move. And, And we can help you do that, but you raised office charging, so have I got enough bandwidth in the grid coming into my office for the number of charge points that I need? What do I do about home charge points? What are the tax implications? And there will be individuals in your policy now 
who are who for whom an EV is the right choice and for those others that aren't and I think what we're seeing you know I think you're probably seeing it as well in your conversations is this you know system that we had of everybody fitting within a single grade when it comes to EVs that doesn't stack up anymore people's behaviors are different and I think we're seeing increasing acceptance of the fact that the old school this is my fleet I have a fleet well actually it's the recognition that you have fleets within a fleet and that has always been there but it's been Hmm. hidden because you work on average toll off costs blended rates etc etc so somebody that's doing 5,000 miles to 50,000 miles are, are treated the same regardless of the vehicle that might actually be suitable for them so fleets have started to recognize that 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 doesn't need to be the approach anymore and in order to take advantage of the opportunities that EV presents is you need to do more driver profiling and make your policy and your strategy a bit more agile to be able to recognize those drivers and talking to fleets as we do at the moment it's saying there are things that you can do today and you may not be able to say I can switch my fleet to EV today well not many people can but that shouldn't stop you from taking those small steps Um, you know even if that is just getting prepared with your charging strategy and doing the modeling and getting ready for the time at which the right product is available with the right lead time there is an awful lot that you can do to be ready and probably in conducting that exercise you start to recognize that there are more people that can have an ev now than you might have thought and again as we said earlier this is coming it is happening so the sooner fleets start to get ready for that day the the better off they'll be and i think it's in fleet managers best interests to start that journey if that journey hasn't already started within the organization because at some point somebody is going to knock on your door and say great what are we doing about evs can we start ordering them now and if you haven't started any kind of prep or any kind of ev readiness program then you could be caught out and we've 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 said it a couple of times but i think it's important as well so we've we've both mentioned whole life cost and and electric vehicles from a whole life cost perspective work they don't necessarily work from a pure rental perspective so when i joined fleet you know many many moons ago way back in 2005 i was still seeing policies based on p11d values you know people very quickly switched to rentals then rental including irrecoverable vat and I've probably been having the conversation about whole life costs since 2009-10 corporation tax changes and yet a lot of fleets still have not made that move from a rental based grade boundary for, for or policy boundary into some form of a whole life cost model and for electric vehicles to work in policy for your C-suite and to get them on board you also have to make the move to whole life cost because if you don't take into account all of the different factors so I can tell you and I can show you the maths and I can show you all the the, the schedules behind the scenes that show you that a Tesla 3, you know, what's that, a 62 grand dual motor car is cheaper from a whole life cost perspective over three years than your BMW 5 series. And I know which one I'd rather drive. But on rental perspective, you'd look at it side by side and dismiss the Tesla 3 as being too expensive. So that whole life cost thinking is critical to take in all of the pushes and pulls. And I think that's where we can help people not just on the ev journey because we are walking the walk we will move corporately to a position now and some countries have managed to go earlier to a situation where 
we only have electric vehicles on our fleet for, for our staff by the end of 2021. So we're walking that and we can help customers move on that journey and, and, and genuinely show our own use cases and kind of say this is the thinking that you need. But guys, critically take one thing away from this section of the podcast, you have to move to whole life costs. You really do.